All right, um, if you would, take your Bibles. Let's go to, uh, uh, in our short time that we had together, Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1 is where I'd like to spend some time with you together over the next couple weeks. It's really, really difficult to get people's attention and focus during the Christmas holiday. When you're try- as, a, as a preacher or a teacher or a pastor, people look at you and you can tell they're looking through you. They're, they're, they're somewhere else in the ether thinking about holiday gatherings and shopping that needs to be done and all these different things that are going on in the minds of people. So it's very extremely challenging for someone to try to stand up here and try to capture your attention and to rivet you back into something that's going to anchor you for the season. So one of the things that's been a challenge in thinking through that is just trying to find a passage of scripture that is going to do that for you. And I think we found a gold mine here in Matthew chapter 1. I can't read this passage without stopping to just think through how committed our God is to Christmas. 4,000 years in the making, he was making Christmas happen through the seed of Abraham, through the line of David, persisting tenaciously to bring about the birth of his son. And uh, so anyway, Matthew 1 doesn't read like a boring list of names to me. It reads like a, a chronicle of God's amazing mercies and grace. So anyway, I want to go through this genealogy with you, with your patience. And I hope that you'll be excited as, as I am about this chapter by the end of it. The season, the Christmas season is rapidly coming upon us. I understand there's a wide ranging host of emotional reactions to that. We've heard some of them in our prayer time this morning. And my question begins to think, I think about what is your attitude towards Christmas? Um, what kinds of attitudes do you see come up in the season? Maybe in your home. Bah humbug. Bah humbug, okay. The Scrooge mentality, right? Or maybe you're a Grinch-type character, right? Uh, have to be honest, that's me, okay? I, uh, <laughs> I have a hard time. Early part of the season, I go, through these, I go shopping, and it seems like everybody wants to happy holiday me. And I want to say, it's Merry Christmas, you godless pagan. Leave me alone. I feel like... I get Scroogey, you know? <laughs> the war against Christmas is real, man. So anyway, I get Scroogey. I get Bah Humbuggy. My heart gets out of whack, okay? What other attitudes do you guys got? Any, what other things, what other challenges come about in your heart that are just, that come around during the holidays? There's a, there's a temptation for our soul here in the, in the, Christ, in the Christmas holiday, isn't there? Family drama. Yeah. All right. So there's a lot of tensions, a lot of conflicts that come about. Estranged family members. Um, hurtful things. Sometimes strange family members. Yeah, for sure. Um, so I, I think of that. I think about the, the different attitudes that can come about. My heart is, is susceptible. It's vulnerable to these, these snares, okay, that happen in the holidays. So uh, I want us to kind of think through that. What other things do you, have you noticed about the Christmas holidays that can be particularly challenging for your heart? It can, it can be stressful. Just, you know, trying to get things done. I don't really enjoy all these things, so I've just got to get it done, get it done. Yeah. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, so stressful. Yeah, stressful, for sure. And, and from, along with that comes the distractions. There's so much distraction. Got to get the schedule right. Got to get the planning right. Got to get everything right. So your heart is just harried with all these concerns and fears and worries and, con- and concerns and 
preparations and has anyone in here uh maybe you have family coming in you're preparing the home for a great bunch of hosts or a bunch of guests and you're the host and and you feel the 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 onerous responsibility of getting the house ready and putting the food together and you feel like people expect you to do it and so it's you have this guilt-driven motivation to do this kind of stuff because you know if you don't do it nobody else is going to do it those type that's a common attitude to have around the holidays so i was just thinking through this maybe you have a sense of dread uh, i think I think of all my favorite christmas movies where you know, it's like the paint can swinging off the, you know, off the stairwell, and you duck and you miss that one, and another one hits you square in the face, you know. Uh, Christmas holidays, you feel the hostilities starting to rise in your family, and tensions. It gets very emotionally tenuous. There's the apathy of like, hey, I'm so sick and tired of the commercialization of the holiday that's meant to be the most important and significant holiday for Chris- Christians, one of the most ones, to, to celebrate, and you just get so tired of the commercialization. You get tired of the grief. Uh, Christmas is different every year. It seems like there's something different about it. People who I love aren't, aren't going to celebrate this one with us this year. And uh, the grief can be overpowering and overwhelming sometimes if you're not careful to think, think about it well. Uh, think about discouragement. <laughs> okay. Uh, people, children who you've longed to walk with the Lord. You've prayed for them so long and they're, and they're rejecting and resisting, refusing all the clear working of the Spirit to bring them back to Him and they're walking away. So you feel the discouragement. You feel all these things. Uh, the anticipation. Maybe you're, the, you're anticipating and your enthusiasm is so bubbling over it drives us all crazy. Okay? But you're excited and, and the distractions, you know? Okay. Uh, yeah. That's good if it's about the right things, okay? Okay, that's what we're going to get to and the preparations, of course. So what's your attitude about Christmas? There's a, there's a lot of ways in which we can endure, go through these holidays, and there's particular temptations. Emotions quickly vacillate on a wide-ranging spectrum at this time of year. In fact, if you think about it, all of the sights and the sounds and the smells and the traditions of this year, of what we've modernly conceived as this Christmas... All of those present some kind of unique temptations to us because we have a drift towards what I'm going to call sentimentality. Sentimentality is not a bad thing in and of itself, but it can be around this time of year. And that sentimentality is what I'm going to say is like the temptation to let your feelings override truth and you're dwelling upon truth. Feelings of like desires to have uh, having high expectations perhaps or having desires for the things and the, the events you're experiencing. You have sentimentality about having Christmas like you used to have it. It's a good old-fashioned Christmas. And these temptations towards sentimentality kind of shape up around a couple of areas I'm going to say are, are like this. Christmas to you then becomes about, everything is about what you do. Our gatherings, it's about our who's going to be there. So it might be about what we do while we're together. Christmas is about who we're with. And if Christmas is only about who we're with, we can get sentimental if they're not there, or we get, dis- we get discouraged. We can fall into these patterns, these, these attitudes we just, we just went over. Christmas is about what we give or what we get. Christmas can be about what we do for others, and we get so wrapped up in the, the good things of Christmas that we're displacing something very crucial from the center of Christmas. 
something very important. So being aware of this, the problem with, uh, the problem with making Christmas center around these things is that, well, as we've noticed as we grow older, number one, our lives change. Lives change. Um, children grow up. Um, people, our dear loved ones, pass on and go, go to be with the Lord. In many cases, some of them do. Some of them will resist the Lord to the very end. Um, we see our lives change. Children are, not, are, are, are a special case of that. You see that all the time. And in order to do Christmas, you have to learn to change with the changes. <laughs> you have to learn to adapt your attitudes and your expectations and your emotions and your feelings to truth. The reality is your children are growing and you're and you're in a you have a mission from the Lord to raise them in the nurture and admonition of the Lord to prepare them to be godly people in the in the in the secular world that they will now enter. So you're thinking about my how's my life changing and how do I change with the changes? Your focus changes. Your focus changes in the holidays. You have to think about what's really central, what's really important. Is it really crucial that my house looks like a magazine? That, you know, uh, does it look like? Uh, do I have the feast that uh, everyone's dreamed of when they come to my home? Is that the focus that we we need to zero in on, or should we focus? Is there a better focus? And uh, I think that you know what I'm, where I'm going with this. You also have to think about what you think about. <laughs> that's a that's something to think about, isn't it? <laughs> you got to think about what you think about because if you don't carefully, you don't train yourself to think carefully and, and line it with scriptural truth, you can you can reason yourself into some pretty bad and dark places, and think horrible thoughts and become resentful and bitter. And uh, so, be careful what you think about. You also have to uh, have a change of heart about your heart. You are not static and stationary in this whole process. Your heart is a responder. You're responding to all of these external things, these conversations, these relationships. All of this is going on, and you're responding. So you have to be very vigilant to keep a guard over your heart during the Christmas holidays. So I don't want to like put a big downer on your holiday, but I do want you to think there is a minefield of snares here that are laid out for you that you could step in this, this season. So being aware of that, what's going, to, what's going to calibrate you, what's going to stabilize you, and what's going to center you for the season? Well, I think the solution is to be deliberately make Christmas center around nothing else other than Christ. You're going to have to think differently about the holidays and become vested in what God has always been vested in. What has Christmas, has, what has God been about in Christmas? 4,000 years in the making, okay? What was he interested in? What was he, you have to be supremely about what he has been always supremely about. And that's the bringing of his son to fulfill some promises. These promises that we read about in Matthew chapter 1 are just, this is the formative bedrock of like what God's doing in all of history. And uh, quite honestly, let's admit we don't think like Matthew's thinking when it comes to Christmas. Because we're not thinking Christmas is about God making good on some promises, some personal promises he made with himself that he's obligated himself to fulfill to Abraham and to David. Even though they're dead, he is working out all of history in his plan to bring about the fulfillment of these great promises. 
And it's all about bringing his son to this earth, despite the challenges, despite the hostilities, despite the fears, despite the trouble, the troublesome family situations, the, the conflicts. He perseveres through all of that to bring Christ into, those situa- into that situation, into this planet, and to, to redeem man to himself. So that's what it's really, Christmas has got to be about that. And when you read Matthew chapter 1, I think you're going to see five hope-inspiring realities from this chapter. If you'll uh, go ahead and have a look with me, we're going to read through this, just the first 16 verses, 17 verses perhaps in our time, and I want to give you five realities that we're going to receive from this passage that we're going to then deep dive on them in the next couple weeks, okay? And I think there's a rich mine here for you. As you're thinking about all the things that are trying to vie for your attention and your emotions, this is going to stabilize you. This is going to help you anchor deep on what, what, what we're supposed to be thinking about at the holidays. You know, Matthew 1 happens. This is going to sound profound. Matthew 1 happens before Matthew 2. What's going on in Matthew 2? Okay. It's the, it's the Magi seeking out the Christ child to adore him, to worship him. So in preface, in preface of that, Matthew hits us with chapter 1, which is a curious thing. I'll, we're going to look at this together. Verse 1, it says, The record of the genealogy of Jesus, the Messiah, the son of David, the son of Abraham. That's your title. Here we go. Abraham was the father of Isaac. Isaac was the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah was the father of Perez and Zerah. By Tamar, these are, these are well-developed stories in the Old Testament, which we'll visit in the weeks ahead. If you don't know who these people are, you will by the end of the next two weeks. Perez, the father of Hezron, and Hezron, the father of Ram, and Ram was the father of Aminadab, and Aminadab, the father of Nashon, and Nashon, the father of Salmon, and Salmon was the father of Boaz by Rahab. Rahab, there's one we recognize. Boaz, there's another one. Boaz was the father of Obed by Ruth, we know that name, and Ruth, and it says, and Obed, the father of Jesse, Jesse was the father of David, the king. What we just read has been basically the story of the patriarchs from Genesis through Joshua, through the time of Joshua, and then the anointing of King David. The next section, the next section he's going to give is 14 more names, and they're all kings. Okay, David was the father of Solomon by Bathsheba, who was the wife of Uriah. Solomon was the father of Rehoboam, Rehoboam the father of Abijah, and Abijah the father of Asa, and Asa the father of Jehoshaphat, Jehoshaphat the father of Joram, and Joram the father of Uzziah, Uzziah the father of Jotham, and Jotham the father of Ahaz, and Ahaz the father of Hezekiah, and Hezekiah was the father of Manasseh, Manasseh the father of Ammon, Ammon the father of Josiah. Josiah became the father of Jeconiah and his brothers at the time of the deportation to Babylon. In in those 14 names, he's carried us through another... um, another thousand years almost, well, 800 years of Jewish history, bringing us from the time of the great setup of God's inaugurated kings, the dynasty of David, all the way to the deportation of people of Israel into captivity. So he's spanned a great deal of time. Why, what's the purpose of all this? He continues in chapter two, verse 12. It says here, After the deportation to Babylon, Jeconiah became the father of Shealtiel. Shealtiel, the father of Zerubbabel. Zerubbabel was the father of Abiud. And Abiud, the father of Eliakim, and Eliakim, the father of Azor, and Azor, the father of Zadok, and Zadok, the father of Achim, and Achim, the father of Eliud, and Eliud, the father of Eleazar, and Eleazar, the father of Mathan. Mathan, the father of Jacob. Jacob was the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary, by whom, that's important, that by whom is a feminine singular pronoun. He's saying, this is, he's going to jump 
lines from Joshua, or sorry, Joseph to Mary, by whom, that is Mary, by whom, I lost my place, go down here, by whom Jesus was born, who is called the Messiah. So that all the generations of Abraham to David are 14 generations. From David to the deportation, from Abraham to David are 14 generations, from David to the deportation of Babylon, 14 generations, and from the deportation of Babylon, the Messiah, 14 generations. So, why are we in this massive list of names? Well, because this is how your New Testament is opening up. Think about it. At the end of Malachi, God's, the word of God has stopped in the timetable of human history. At, at, for 400 years, there will now be rising empires that will come to power. They will rise and they will fall. Israel will be attacked by these nations and then, re, and then basically seized out of their land, sent into the regions of the Gentiles, and displaced for a period of 70 years. And then they will be oppressed and occupied by Romans. The Romans will set up illegitimate king named Herod, who comes not from the line of David. He doesn't deserve to be on the throne. He's an illegitimate king. There will then be Jewish revolts that will try to seize power and restore, restore the kingly line. All of this is hopelessly, horribly fails. Bloody, bloody demolishing of the Jewish nation, okay? Then we come to Matthew chapter 1. After 400 years has gone by without a single word from a prophet, God breaks the silence with a dramatic opening. And he hits us with 17 or 42 names of people we can't hardly pronounce. And what's his purpose in that? What's he doing? He is affirming his promise has never stopped. He's affirming that his faithfulness has not ceased, even though you haven't heard from him, even though you haven't experienced heard from a prophet, you don't have any new, revel- new revelation, God has not broken off his, his obligation, his commitment to his people. He is faithful. He's gracious. And when he breaks the silence, it's, 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 it's going to give you five things that I want you to get from this list of names overall. Number one, it's a record. God is giving us a, a record of his promise that, has, that he has maintained he has not forgotten his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob and to the line of David. He continues to remain them, remain uh, faithful to them. He is showcasing the glory of his faithfulness here. It's all about making good on the covenant promises that he made specifically at the beginning. He mentions Abraham and David, who are the kind of like mountaintop figures in the whole list. It's about doing what he obligated himself to do. Now, he made these promises in a sense to Abraham and to David, but... More specifically, he was making those with himself. These are obligations he made unilaterally. He didn't make a promise to some human being. He himself made this promise with himself, which we'll look at next week. Okay, So he is covenantly, covenanted and bound, bound together to bring about these things which he promised, to bring forth his anointed king from among the race of men. And as you look at this list, this list is very different from any other genealogical record that we read in, the, in Gentile literature or in Jewish literature. They did not typically mention women. Now, the women that are mentioned here are specifically mentioned, and they have, they hit with a, I mean, they just, there's a, there's a resounding reason for why they're there. Okay, we're going to look at the women in the genealogy in the next couple of weeks. And then you read about Gentiles. That was unheard of in a Jewish kingly line. If you're trying to establish your king as the most 
author, authorized and most uh, rightful to rule, you don't mention Gentiles in a line of geneal- Jewish genealogies. Why are the Gentiles there? It's because I think God's giving us a preview and a taste for what happens at the end of the book. The end of the book of Matthew is a beautiful symmetry of between how, remember the Great Commission that we're supposed to, that, that Jesus said, I'm giving, all power is given unto me. Go therefore and make disciples of all the nations. So we see that what's happening at the end of the book is a continuation of what God has endeavored to do from the time of Abraham, to bring them in the Gentile nations, to bring them in, and by his grace, bring them and include them into the connection and relationship with his son, Jesus Christ. So you'll see the Gentiles are mentioned. You see sinners mentioned. This is, this is not just, uh, this is something you would never include if you're trying to set up your king as the king of righteousness, to include sinful people. You see kings and commoners not just royalty here. So there's so many wonderful things in this text that I think is so helpful to us. For those of us who read this Bible, read, read our Bible carefully and seriously, this passage is not just a normal genealogical record about the forebearers of Christ. Many of us will gloss over these names in order to get to the narrative action because we're more interested in what Jesus did. But that's not Matthew's purpose. Matthew wants to make sure that before you know what he did, you know who he is, who he was. In the Western culture, we t- kind of take people on the, on the merits of who they profess themselves to be. We don't ask about your upbringing and ask about your background and your, and your heritage too much. We don't really care about that in the Western society. We take everybody on his own, on his own two feet. We take everybody on his own merits. You are who you are by, by your own character. But that's not so. In the, in the Hebrew mentality, it doesn't matter what you say. It's who you come from. It's where you come from, who, 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 who you really are. And so that's, that's critical to, to note, and we'll, we'll see that, that this has been a record set down. Why is that important? It's because uh, there was always trouble around Jesus' identity. Matthew wants to kind of get out of the gate right away and tell us exactly who Jesus was. In Matthew chapter 13, 54 through 57, it tells us this interesting vignette about the life of Jesus when he says, it says here, he came into his hometown, Matthew 13, 54. He came into his hometown and began teaching them in their synagogue so that they were astonished and said, where did this man get this wisdom and these miraculous powers? Is not this the carpenter's son? Is not his mother called Mary and his brothers James and Joseph and Simon and Judas and his sisters? Are they not all with us? Where then did this man get all these things? And they took offense at him. They took offense at him. They missed him because they had confusion about where he heralded from. They didn't understand his, up, his, his origin. Matthew is going to kind of, is showing us that those questions around Jesus' identity were still in the, in the, uh, in the minds of the culture around him. And Jesus is, in Matthew setting the record straight. There's a record here. Um, John chapter 7, verse 25. 27. And some of the people of Jerusalem were saying, is not this the man whom they were seeking to kill? The people were looking at this man, Jesus teaching them and saying, this, this man's, aren't they trying to kill this guy? How is he teaching in public? He goes on to say, they go on to say this, look, he's speaking publicly. They are saying nothing to him. The rulers do not really know that this is the Christ, do they? However, we know where this man is from. Oh, do you? But whenever the Christ may come. No one knows where he is from. Is that true? 
Well, they were mistaken about his upbringing. They were mistaken about the prophecies of, of the... They did not... They have a poor understanding of their own scriptures. So Matthew wants to set down and make sure that everyone's clear on who Jesus is. It's a, it's a genealogical record. The second thing we want to notice is the recollection. This is very popular, very, very important in Hebrew culture and mindset, is that you rehearse the history. You rehearse it. You actually rehearse it so well that you have it memorized. You have it embedded deeply into your heart because the rehearsal and the, and the recollection of these things is to help to uh, firmly fix you in a list of people. You are not just an individual. <laughs> you are a supporting character in the main drama of God's unfolding revelation. Life isn't all about you in, in, the, gene, in, the, in the genealogical mindset. You're playing a role that helps to forward the faith, to transmit the faith to the next generation, to walk faithfully. Isn't that something? There's something wrong with our American society that's very individualistic, that thinks of us ourselves as just our own individual and the persons without accountability or responsibility to others. That's not what you're going to see in, in, in here. It's a, it's a recollection of history. It's also a realization. Matthew wants you to see this because this list of 42 names about 17th name in, you're realizing something. You're realizing something. Something is coming to fruition. You're seeing God bring about the narrowing of his great promise that he would bring a seed from Abraham. And that seed begins to narrow through the line of Abraham, and then Isaac, and then Jacob, all the way down through the line until it comes to the final culmination in, 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 in Mary there at the end. And so you're starting to realize that as Matthew's gospel will use this phrase, henna plerothe, over and over and over again. It's the, it's the phrase we translate in our Bibles, that it might be fulfilled. That it might be fulfilled. God's not writing bad checks on his promises, okay? He's fulfilling them. He's making them good. He's backing them up. He's fulfilling them. These events that you've just read correspond to and are in complete agreement with the law, the writings, and the, and the prophets of the Old Testament. It's not like we can just whack the Old Testament and disconnect and unhitch from the Old Testament. The Old Testament is the continuity that brings us forward into the New Testament where God is bringing forth the fulfillments of all of these things. The Old Testament is being realized in the New Testament just through Jesus, the Messiah. And, of course, it's a revelation. We're going to get introduced to the foremost character, the the. the the, the gospel's prominently featured character is Jesus Christ. He's going he's gonna to be the subject of all the rest of the narrative throughout the rest of the book. And Matthew seeks to make sure that the record is, um, is clear. They were humbled, they were, sorry, they were stumbling at his humble roots. They were stumbling at, his poor, at their poor knowledge of the scriptures. They were stumbling at his origins. And Matthew 1 is setting that record clear. And Matthew's not, dis, he's not going to dodge the difficulty surrounding Jesus. He's, he's breaking with the tradition by including sinners and Gentiles and women, and even a cursed king, which is a major, a major milestone in this thing, which we'll look at how God circumvents this cursed king and still fulfills his promise. He overcomes all obstacles, so that even when Mary's singing her song at the, after she's met with the angel, she's singing... God can do the impossible thing. God's doing this thing. It's impossible. But God, with God, all things are possible. She is so convinced of this. And um, 
that's a massively hopeful thing as you read through these list of names. Um, and lastly, it's a readying. Sorry for the odd wording here. It's a readying, though. He is preemptively putting out before you a foreshadowing of what's to come. He's kind of tipping his hand. It's beautiful. It's a literary thing he's doing here by keying you in on some things. The, the, The gospel is going out to the Gentiles, and just as it was promised, the Gentiles are receiving the Jewish Messiah. He is setting up a kingdom that's not just locally here in Jerusalem, but it's extending into the ends of the earth. His kingdom is going to over encompass all of the nations in a sense in which they are brought into faith in connection with Jesus Christ, the seed of Abraham, the, the, the son of David. It's a beautiful motif that we see and sample even here in the genealogy. So as you can see, Christmas or the incarnation of Christ is very little to do, very little to do with the paraphernalia that we associate with Christmas. Matthew uses this genealogy to introduce the king to us and then moves the Christmas account of the Gentile Magi journey to pay homage and renders honors to him as a child. In other words, what what Matthew's doing is he's showing that this is a promise fulfilled. So so what what can we take away from this? Um, We'll talk about this next week, but we've got to be careful. We don't displace Christ from the center. That's where, Christ, where God has physically placed him. That's where his, our focus should be upon. We should not buy into the Hallmark Channel's view of Christmas. Okay? I know we enjoy those movies, but they, are, they give us the ideal of a perfect sentimental Christmas. That's, that's dangerous for us if you imbibe that. Okay, all right. That's not what Christmas is about, because your Christmas will likely not look anything like those movies. And neither should you try to make it look like those movies, okay? Don't get wrapped up in all your gift-giving and receiving because it's not, I know you know this, it's not about the gifts, right? You tell this to your kids. Do you, do you understand this? You believe this yourself? You don't fixate on the cultural war against Christmas? Look, the world is always hostile against Christmas. Look at Herod. He's murdering babies to stop Christmas, okay? They hate, the world hates. It has a hostility towards God. It, bring, it comes out at this time of year. You see it, and you just say, yep, there it is. I saw that before. I've seen that in scriptures. I was told to expect that. Don't get cranky and upset. Thank God for the grace and the light of the gospel which shone into your heart. And pray that God will do that for others. Okay? Uh, these things, uh, when Christ is displaced by anything, even good things, the family togetherness, the, the random acts of kindness, the gift giving, all of that easily changes our heart and our thinking away from the center. These things become functional gods that you can serve and you can worship instead of the one true God. You say, that's interesting. I've, I never thought about that. But yes, you're, you're thinking you're worshiping these gods of a perfect family gathering, these gods of a perfect family harmony, a beautiful Christmas dinner. That's something you are slaving for. You are serving. You are worshiping. And you have not realized, but you're thinking you've already slipped into an idolatry of a kind. That you're worshiping that beyond Christ. You will never, these things you hope that will bring you peace and contentment and joy and satisfaction, they're going to ultimately leave you dissatisfied and discouraged. So how do you know if Christ has been displaced? Number one, you're going to know it by what proceeds out of your mouth. You're going to hear yourself say things. You're going to think, wait a minute, that's shocking to me even to hear myself say those things. What came out of my mouth is a revelation of what's in my heart. I, 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 think I've, I think I want that too badly. <laughs> I think I want this peace in my family too much. 
Um, I, I, you're going to know by what, how your desires are expressed. Are you angry? Are you frustrated? Are you creating conflict with your marriage and your children and your home and your family at large? Are you creating these things? Because your desires are so powerful, you're willing to go to war for them. James chapter 4 tells us that's where wars and fightings come. Or desires that are expressed during this holiday. You will know by what motivates your action. What's behind the action? Nothing is an action in and of itself. It's motivated by something. There's something behind that that you want, that you desire, that you long for, that you're, you're willing to step on people or break. You're willing to sin or violate commands of God to get. Uh, you'll know by what dominates your attention. What's, got, what's in the full, what's in the view? What's, what are you thinking about most? What's got your attention? So how do I keep Christ central? And this is kind of, I'm sorry, this is cheesy a little bit, but I, ha- I need mnemonic devices to help me remember things, so this is my help to try to help you, okay? How do I keep Christ central? I know it sounds so cliche, um, but it is cliche because it is so universal. People know this has happened at this time of year. Commit to give Christ priority. I mean, you've got to fight to do that. And you're going to have the most subtle things try to crowd out a focus on Christ so easily. Honor him in your celebrations. Celebrations should not just be done just for the purpose of joy and the friendship and the fellowship. We, we love those things, but those things in and of themselves are empty. Christ needs to see and be at the center of all of our observations, all of our celebrations. Reflect and rejoice and marvel at God's redeeming work that he's been carrying out for 4,000 years, and then since Christ, it's been continually ongoing. Insist on worshiping him exclusively and share the hope of Christ. Take time with him in his word. By the way, you'll have an opportunity at Christmas Eve. It'll be our Christmas Eve service, okay? I know it's challenging. Christmas Eve is especially usually reserved for families, and you have a lot of things dreamed up about that time, but we also have church, okay? So uh, there's a test for your heart. Okay, I'll just put it there for you like that. Test for your heart. What is going to vie for the priority of your heart in that day, in that time? Keep Christ central, okay? The genealogy reminds us of that in one way, and there's so much more I want to look forward to delve into with you deeper in the next couple weeks. Thanks for listening. Let's have a word of prayer and I'll let you go. Thank you, Father, for the privilege to hear these testimonies this morning. Thank you for these, this sweet couple and their, um, their boldness just to say, uh, they were they were helpless without you. They needed Christ. Christ was their Savior. He saved them from sin. And they're willing to announce that publicly to people around them. And I thank you for that testimony. I pray that you nourish this couple, grow them, help them to uh, follow you with all their heart and their lives. Help us, Lord, as, also, along with them. We're all in the process of growing and sanctification. Help us to to just pursue you this Christmas season. Our hearts are vulnerable on so many fronts, I pray that we would be re- refreshed in our commitment here through the text of Scripture to be about what you are about in this season, to be fixated upon what you've been fixated upon for all of human history, and that is the exaltation of Jesus Christ coming to this earth, born to redeem man, restore them to the Father through the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll pray for all of your help and your spirit to enable us to do this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, thanks a lot, guys. Have a great holiday.